0: Most Americans are probably not aware of the number of wars currently being fought by the United States, where they're at, the number going on simultaneously, and the cost of those wars, both in terms of human life and dollars. Those are the topics on this edition of Update One. I'm Mike Hempen, a vice co-chair of the Broadcast Podcast Committee here at the National Press Club and a supervisor at the Associated Press. My guest is Emily Manna a policy analyst for Open the Government, a nonpartisan coalition that advances government transparency and accountability. She also has authored a citizen's guide called America's Forever Wars and the secrecy that sustains them. Emily, welcome to Update One.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: A very interesting guide here, very detailed. First of all, let me ask you, what was the thinking? What was the motivation behind Doing the research for this guide and writing it. Uh,
1: well, as you said, uh, we're Open the Government uh, is a, a a coalition dedicated to government transparency and accountability, and uh, one of the areas of our government that is uh, most highly shrouded in secrecy is uh, the military and the national security agencies. And at this point, uh, that the U.S. has been in, involved in wars for nearly 18 years uh, straight. Um, It really we've really noticed kind of a a a troubling trend um, where not only is the amount of secrecy at the government level increasing, but it also feels that um, this these wars have become so normalized that the public is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily feel that they have the right to kind of know what's happening in the military and overseas. It, it feels like a lot of the public is kind of content to just leave that all, uh, leave that all to the experts, leave it to the military, leave it to the government and not ask questions and just say, that's the realm of national security. We don't need to know. Um, and we find that really troubling because without uh, a public demand for transparency and information, uh, there is no oversight. And, and, there is no accountability. So what we tried to do uh, through the guide, and uh, we've been taking that around the country to a few different cities to try and speak to the public, is just to show folks the ways in which these wars um, are not only having a a tremendous impact overseas, but are also impacting uh, the public here at home domestically, uh, why they should care and why, uh, most importantly, why they have a right to know what the government and the military are are doing in their name
0: now you mentioned this information becoming harder for the public to find why is that why do you think the government has become more secretive regarding this information
1: well, national security uh, secrecy, excessive secrecy, has has always been a huge problem. Of course, um, it was a problem uh, in the Obama administration, in the Bush administration, and and long before that. Um, but we have seen uh, in in during the Trump administration, we have seen a, a kind of um, accelerated uh, expansion of secrecy uh, that just seems to be coming out of kind of a culture of secrecy that exists within in this administration that um, you know is not. Again, it's not unique. Uh, the Obama administration had a lot of the same issues, but, but does seem to be growing at a, at a faster pace. Um, and so, for example, we've seen, uh, the Pentagon now, it's been over a year since the Pentagon last held a televised press briefing. Um, we have seen that DOD uh, has started stopped releasing a lot of information about uh, airstrike targeting in Iraq and Syria that used to be re- released routinely to the public. We've seen restrictions in the amount of data being collected in Afghanistan. So, for example, uh, data that used to be released on um, whether territory is controlled by the Afghan government or the Taliban, this has stopped being released to the public, stopped being collected altogether, in fact. So, you know, we have kind of seen seen slowly over time, uh, a real withdrawal from from transparency um, in in the Pentagon specifically.
0: And you also said something else very interesting, the public not feeling it has a right to know what's going on and maybe not pushing for this information like it would have in the Mm -hmm. past. Why those feelings?
1: Well, it's it's also become so normalized this idea that at any time uh, uh, an official mentions national security, we just kind of take for granted that that information is secret, and any any release of uh, of any of that information would be harmful to the troops, or harmful to the government, harmful to the country, and and that's just not true. National security overclassification uh, in the government is is a massive problem. Again, has been for decades. Current and former government officials have estimated that anywhere between 50 to 90 percent of government information that is currently classified could safely be released to the public. So this is a, this is a massive um, cultural issue within government. And, you know, it's it's not enough to just say, oh, this this concerns national security. And so therefore, none of it can be released to the public. And and essentially, all that really leads to at the end of the day is there's all kinds of uh, waste of taxpayer dollars, uh, abuses, things like that, that that get covered up because it's just easier to say, well, this has to do with national security so we keep it secret. So um, you know it's really important that we start to push back uh, a lot more vehemently on that trend um, and and make sure that that the public understands that it's so crucial that there's as much transparency as, as is possible.
0: This is a very detailed report, this citizen's guide that you've compiled. And when we talk about the ongoing wars, the simultaneous wars, we're talking about how many, about 13, all since 2001?
1: I mean, it, it really depends how you count it. And and part of the issue there is that we just don't really know. We don't really know all the places that uh, U.S. troops are engaged. We don't know which countries are considered war zones versus outside of war zones, it's all of that information uh, is is really being kept secret and as as the uh, reliance on special forces also increases, we have a lot less information you know journalists can't uh, necessarily embed with a with a special forces unit and go to the front lines and report back to the public what they see that's happening so it, it just this kind of um, this kind of uh, growing secrecy just increases and increases partly because of the nature of these wars themselves and also because uh, uh, of the very intentional uh, drawbacks of transparency that, that I mentioned.
0: Okay, so the intentional drawbacks of transparency. Ideally, what would you like to see the government do in terms of becoming more transparent?
1: Obviously, first and foremost, like to see just restoring uh, those ty- those data releases that I mentioned before, you know, the, the airstrikes in, in Iraq and Syria the, uh, the data collection, uh, on the ground in Afghanistan, um, and, and then ultimately expansion of that because at the end of the day, the public right now doesn't have any idea of whether what, what we're doing overseas is is uh, successful or not. That, that statistic about territory in Afghanistan, the one that I mentioned, was kind of one of the primary ways um, that uh, the public had for being able to assess, you know, what is the state of play in Afghanistan right now? How much control does the government have versus the Taliban? What's happening? Uh, and, you know, what we had started to see over the years was that, in fact, the Taliban was controlling more and more territory. So that was a way for the public to view that in question, you know, and say, is what we're Doing over there, working is—is it, is it effective? Does something need to change? So without that kind of data, it, it's really impossible uh, to tell. Um, additionally, this administration has rescinded a section of an executive order that um, President Obama had issued that required public reporting on uh, CIA drone strikes um, and uh, civilian casualties, um, any kind of statistics on those strikes whatsoever. We now there is now no requirement. Um, Now, the administration already was not following that requirement. They were not reporting as they should have been. But now there is no requirement out there that's for any type of reporting on CIA drone strikes. So this this program is now entirely shrouded in secrecy. So you've you've got government programs that are allowed to use lethal force that the public has absolutely no knowledge of uh, besides what is what is kind of leaked or dug up by reporters. There's there's no, uh, you know, government reported information out there about what these programs are programs are doing and where they're operating.
0: We've talked about government secrecy, we talked about citizens not knowing enough about what's going on for a couple of reasons. What about the findings of your report itself? Some of the major findings in terms of number of wars, casualties, amount of dollars being spent. Can you give us a rundown there?
1: The statistics that you're talking about specifically come from the uh, Cost of War Project at Brown University, which I would really encourage folks to to check out. In addition to checking out the guide, but I believe the statistic is that the the average uh, American has spent something uh, like twenty three thousand dollars on these wars since they started. Um, there's some 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 really kind of stunning statistics like that. There was also we we found some some really horrifying uh, polling numbers. One Poll in particular showed that the vast majority of respondents could not correctly name the year the Iraq War started. Another poll found that forty percent of respondents did not know that we were still at war in Afghanistan. So there really is kind of um, a stunning lack of knowledge, uh, I think, uh, in the public. And th- that's that's just uh, you know Afghanistan and Iraq, which are the two most publicized of of the wars that we're engaged in. That's to say nothing of Somalia and Yemen and Pakistan and and any of these other places. So that was that was a huge uh, a huge point i mean the other the other major point uh, i think in this guide is just to show the ways uh in which the war comes home after so many years um, we've seen a massive erosion of civil liberties uh, here in the u.s most of which started out in in programs that were ostensibly authorized and and geared towards fighting international terrorism um, and 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 targeting uh, folks overseas that eventually the authorities expanded uh, and they turned homewards and, and so we've expansion of surveillance programs uh and technologies and things like that, um, as well as just the cost, the tremendous cost on on veterans and military families, um, a smaller and smaller percentage uh of whom are are sharing a greater and greater part of the burden uh, of these wars.
0: Now I know you mentioned Before we started the interview, how you've tried to take this study, these findings around the country and expose Mm -hmm. them to the public. If you can talk about that effort, where you've been and how you've been trying to reach the public.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've been able to do five events so far. um, And it's been everywhere from Atlanta, Georgia, to uh, Utica, New York, to Kansas City, to Minneapolis. Um, We've uh, taken, you know, kind of different slices of this issue to different communities with whom, you know, it may resonate the most. So, for example, uh, we went to Minneapolis and spoke with Uh, the Somali-American community there in partnership with Amnesty International, who who released a fantastic report uh, earlier this year about uh, civilian casualties from U.S. airstrikes in Somalia. And their work actually helped push the U.S. government to acknowledge more civilian casualties, uh, which was a a huge win for transparency. So we talked to the Somali-American community there about that, why it's so important for them to be raising their voices uh, and and asking for more information, particularly because it's their, you know, Know friends and family back home in Somalia who who are bearing the brunt of of U.S. airstrikes there. Uh, on the flip side of the spectrum, we we spoke to young Americans for Liberty at the University of Georgia about uh, you know separation of powers, the lack of congressional oversight of the military right now, the need to have a con- real congressional debate about authorizations uh, for for war, um, and Congress kind of reasserting its its war authority. So it's really kind of um, been all over the spectrum. Um, But really just trying to to connect with whichever community uh, we're speaking to about about the slice of this issue that may, um, you know, affect them the most.
0: And obviously you've picked a variety of areas, different people in those areas. What has the response been in general to your findings?
1: I'm going to sound contradictory because I just uh, cited those poll numbers that showed a lack of knowledge. But I I did think that speaking to people, people had, you know, a a little bit better understanding um, of what's happening than I expected. I just think, you know, it's, it's hard for people to feel like there is an avenue for them to to actually do something about it and make a difference. And that maybe if they if they felt like there was something that they could do more directly, um, then, then, you know, maybe it, there wouldn't be as much, you know, apathy or, or normalization of, of these issues. So we've tried to encourage uh, folks to do things like file a Freedom of Information Act request, try to look for more information, um, ask your public officials, what are their positions on these issues? Just show them that their constituents uh, care about what's happening overseas, show them that there's interest, show them, you know, that that you'd like to know that they have uh, some kind of plan for ending endless wars or 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 things like that. So, um, you know, we've tried to give people those those options for things that they can do.
0: Have they been receptive to those ideas?
1: I think so. I think so. I mean, it's always a little bit tough to to kind of know, you know, kind of what happens after you leave. But it does feel like like people have been receptive. In some cases, you know, with the the Amnesty International report that I mentioned, we were specifically asking folks to contact their members of Congress and ask the military to investigate the claims that were made in these these Amnesty International reports. And I know that we got quite a few, quite a few folks to uh, to engage in that. So I think so. I think folks are receptive. I think and I think there's there's started to be a little more of a national conversation about this, both with the kind of Democratic contenders for, for president, as well as with President Trump himself. There's been a lot more conversation on this issue in particular. So I'm, I'm hopeful that there will be uh, more conversation about it leading up to to the next presidential elections and that, you know, we can kind of keep that momentum going and and show elected officials that this is an important issue to the public.
0: Was there timing in this report in terms of trying to expose this leading up to the 2020 presidential election?
1: That wasn't necessarily the initial intent. You know, last year, I think uh, everyone was thinking a little bit more about about midterm elections. But but it has worked out that way in the sense that I think we're going to be thinking, um, you know, about. About how this conversation continues in the fall, where're of course uh, a c3 organization so we don't uh, get involved in in uh, electioneering, but we do want folks to be having that conversation so we are going to be thinking about you know the kind of locations where we're going um, you know where there's there's a lot of political conversation happening where are the hot spots um, where where people are having these kinds of conversations and and hope to influence that conversation.
0: So you partially answered my <laughs> next question, my final question. What do you hope happens next? You have compiled a very inclusive report, a lot of research, a lot of good information. You want the public to be more demanding in terms of the information they get. You want the government to be more open. What do you hope happens next?
1: We would like to to uh hopefully engage more members of Congress in in some of the events that we're putting on um, and and just really ensure that we're, you know connecting uh, the communities and the places that we're going to their members of Congress to show, you know, this, these are the people that are turning out to talk about this. Um, you know, these are your constituents uh, and and hope to have some some influence that way, um, as well as as, uh, you know, incorporate um, a little bit more of these types of issues into some of the the Already incredible uh, planning that's going on among civil society for for broader democracy re- reforms uh, that can happen. There's no reason why this issue and these issues of foreign policy in general shouldn't be a part of that conversation. So I think we would really like uh, like to see that happen um, and to see uh, see this these kind of issue of endless war be less divorced from from the general issues of, of democracy reform. Yeah.
0: Emily, nice job. Thanks (laughs) for being on Update One. Thanks for having me. Emily Manna has been our guest on Update One, a policy analyst with Open the Government. I'm Mike Hempin. Thanks for listening. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to update1podcast. That's update, the number one podcast, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.